What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. And here we are back in the studios of Main FM and back in Deep Trouble. I'm the editor of Trouble magazine, Steve Proposh. And I'm Dr. Mark Halloran. And you are in Deep Trouble. This week in Deep Trouble, we have uh, Uncle Rick Nelson, Jara uh, Jara Elder. Mark, tell us about uh, Uncle Rick. Uh, Uncle Rick's homeland is the land of the Jajarurung people, and he has been providing on-country sessions with members of the community which educate people about the significance of local Jajarurung sites, uh, as well as culture and history around the Franklin Ford Protectorate system. Uncle Rick's father, Uncle Brian Nelson, has also been a significant figure within the Jajarurung community, and Uncle Rick is a direct descendant of Henry Harmony Nelson, who was born in Carisbrook in the 1850s and who is an apical elder of the Jajawarung. Right, brilliant. And uh, this was recorded at Malmesbury Town Hall, I believe. Yes, we did an interview with Rick at Malmesbury earlier this year. Brilliant. So that was sort of an outside broadcast situation there. So um, sound quality is pretty good, but forgive any trespasses. Be kind. Be kind. As Kamal used to say. Uh, let's get into it. Welcome. I'd like to invite Rick to begin with a welcome to country. Thanks, Mark. As more and more people are becoming aware, Aboriginal people didn't just wander around the countryside nomadically with nothing much to do but hunt and gather. They had strict protocols on things they could do and not do and strict protocols on places they could go and places they could not go. One place they could not go was into a neighbouring group's area without first being invited and participating in the Tandirum ceremony or a welcome to country ceremony or as the early settlers like to call it, freedom of the bush ceremony that give them the ability to, to roam around the bush without being hassled by the local Aboriginal people. So just on that note, on behalf of my ancestors and elders and the Jajawurrung community, I'd like to say Wamintika Wurrunane Willumbit, Willum Jajawurrung Baluk. Welcome to my homeland, home of the Jajawurrung people. Thanks. Uncle Rick Nelson, the descendant of the Jajawurrung, uh, and I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting here today on the land of the Jajawurrung, and to also acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. I'd first like to talk to you about your current work, which is your work on the pipeline and the water pipelines, which are beginning in Darlesford and going through to St Arnott, and what, what that role is. Yeah, well, there's currently a water pipe that's coming from the Grampians. It's around 1,300 kilometres, which runs around central western Victoria, around Wedderburn, St Arnott, up near Bort, um, and down to near Denali and zigzags hundreds of different directions in between. Basically, it's running water out to some farms, um, farming communities, and to some of the smaller communities around that way. 
My role is to work with archaeologists to survey the pipeline route, try and make sure that they don't dig up any Aboriginal sites along the way. We have about 30 people involved in that. Um, we rotate the work around weekly so that lots of members of the Jajawaran community get some work and learn more about their culture. So we try to preserve and protect the sites as best we can. Um, sometimes there's salvage operations where we can't protect them if, if they're not very significant. If they are significant, we can um, discuss with the construction companies to deviate their lines or, or their pipeline to not to disturb those sites as, as best we can. If they do disturb them, sometimes we try to put what artefacts we find back at the same place so the site retains its integrity. If we can't do that, sometimes they might go to a museum, but Bunjalaka in Melbourne is one, or back to the, the Jajawarung Corporation, which will have them on display at various places. What sort of artefacts and sites are deemed significant? One of the main things we find and look for, little tools that we commonly call thumbnail scrapers, because some of them aren't much bigger than your, your thumbnail, really. And they're little uh, scraping blades or little blades, what they would shave back their boomerangs and their spears with and cut skins off of animals with. So we find what we call napping floors where, where they may have been sitting or camping and will be chipping away at, at the stone. It's not often, but sometimes we do find complete tools, but a lot of it is debris left over from where they were making the tools themselves. We also find earth ovens, Aboriginal cooked in the ground, not unlike the Maori people. So we find those. Scar trees is another common one that's found. And sometimes we will find axe heads and mortar and pestle uh, portable grinding stones. Occasionally, there might be a rocky outcrop where um, there'd be grinding grooves in the rocky outcrops. You can tell I've come straight from work today. So, yeah, they're some of the common things that are found around central Victoria. I know we talked about it earlier in terms of the trade that occurred between Aboriginal tribes, but uh, could you talk a little around the mine, I think that was at Lancefield and some of the mines that are around here, and what, what are the significance of those? Yeah, well, uh, we know of the Mount William Axe Quarry, which is uh, over near Lancefield, and some of those axe heads or, or axes have been found up to 600 kilometres away into New South Wales and to, into South Australia. This was a very significant stone. As far as we know, it's only found in three or four places in Victoria. Three of them are on um, Jajawarung country, and they were so sought after that these were, that people would trade three possum skin cloaks for one axe plank. An axe plank is just a, a raw piece of stone, which is roughly shaped, and you had to go away and, and shape it some more and grind an edge on it. And we know it could take up to 100 hours to grind a good edge on a piece of stone. So a possum skin cloak can have up to 40 or, or more possum skins in it. So you to trade three of those for one axe plank, they were highly prized. Yeah. I know we talked about the mines here in terms of the black rock that was quite useful in terms of shaping weapons. Yep. We found a particular type of stone which is called trachyte or tacolite. There's a bit of confusion about the actual name of it. 
which comes from a, a lava flow, one source of the lava flow from Spring Hill, just out the back here, out the back of Malmesbury and Kyneton, and the lava flowed down into the Colburn River, and when it hit the water, it cooled really rapidly and produced this black, shiny, glassy-type stone, which, again, is really only found on Jajaburung country, in particular out the back of Kyneton here with Malmesbury, we found a couple of quarries, and it could have also come from a lava flow from Macedon as well. And again, we found that up into Bort, which is up the top end of Jajaburung country, and again, it holds a, a really sharp edge. We've actually seen people cut their hands and stuff with it. So again, it was a, a prized tool-making type of stone. We found the stone was taken into different areas, particularly like Bort, where there's not a lot of stone and particularly not much quartz. We find these tools made out of quartz, a silkrete type of stone, and chert. And this trachyte, I call it trachyte, um, seems to be the best stone for these uh, little little thumbnail scrapers and little blades that holds a really sharp edge on it. Yes, we only work in Jajawarung country. Other traditional owners work in, in their country, but we know that the stone was traded and has been found in other parts of Victoria as well. It just occurred to me that the ancient eruptions of places like Mount Franklin and Tarangara had spread gold throughout the country and that was then, I guess, discovered after European colonisation during the gold rush. Uh, the Aboriginal people found a lot of the gold on the ground during that time, but yeah. they didn't value it prior to that and you talked about some of the reasons for that. Yeah, we know that gold, I think, is, is pretty much is found in quartz veins but the Aboriginal people didn't have a need for gold. It's um, it's too soft and doesn't make a very good tool. It'll dent if, if you hit it, particularly against other types of stone. Or that's another thing we would find is hammer stones and anvil stones, where people would be hitting the piece of stone that they want to make the tools out of, so they rested on another stone and hit it with a hammer stone. So gold is far too soft for any of those uses. There was a couple of instances where some medicine-type men had little nuggets in their dilly bags and that that they carried. Not sure for what reason, probably because it was a nice shiny rock and they may have thought it had magical or medicine qualities about it. Yeah, yeah. The Judge Arung people have got a Dreamtime story about Mount Franklin and Mount Tarangawa having a bit of a feud. The younger Mount Franklin feuding with the old Mount Tarangawa. We know Mount Tarangawa actually erupted up out of the ground, but it just stayed there. It didn't do anything else. It didn't erupt in a volcano-type event. But Mount Franklin did. They thought it was Mount Franklin was, was throwing fire and, and molten rocks at Tarangawa. Now, we now know that that was a volcano eruption, and as far as we know, that erupted around 5,000 years ago. So for the people to have a dreaming story about it, they've probably seen it happen. There's a good chance people were around Mount Franklin for at least 5,000 years. I wanted to talk to you about your grandfather as well. Uh, he seems to be a, a fairly significant historical figure, Harmony Nelson. Who was he and what was his significance? It was my, I think it's like three greats, I think, great, great, great grandfather who was born out near Carisbrook in the 1850s 
and spent a little bit of time around Mount Franklin and at the Mount Franklin Aboriginal School, but then was taken to Corrandirk, which is an Aboriginal reserve down near Healesville. And we know he spent a large time of his young life there. He was taken there when he was 10 or 11 and got married there when he was in his early to mid-20s. He spent a lot of his childhood and young adult life the Corrandirk mission. But he was a champion for Aboriginal rights and to try and obtain land for the Aboriginal people to farm and, and stuff. His signature has been found on three or four petitions to the government requesting land. A couple of those were petitions from Corrandirk, led by William Barrack, one of their elders from the um, Woiwurrung or Wurundjeri people. Also, we found uh, one petition he sent to the Warrnambool newspaper in the late 1800s, also requesting land to farm. And he moved around a bit and ended up one of the pioneers up at the Kamragunja mission up near Echuca and was heavily involved in you know, working and clearing that land and in the walk-off of the Kamragunja mission. And his son married um, a surgeon's daughter and they had a pharmacy and a school up at Kamragunja. So he was one of the early pioneers. Upper Kamragunja too. What we think that happened is the fight to save Corrandirk. And I think after the half-caste act came in, and he was actually um, a half-caste, on his marriage certificate it says his mother was Mary Ann and his father was a white man from the Loddon district. So we're not sure if if she'd had an affair or something with, with a white man or something like that. Yeah. So after the half-caste act came in, half-castes were banished from the reserves and that's when a lot of the half-castes from Corrandirk moved up to the Murray, up to um, the Yorta Yorta people and the Bangarang people, which they considered their friends and ended up one of the pioneers of the Kamagunja. So he's a champion for land rights for the Aboriginal people in the mid to late 1800s. I know that your father, uh, Brian Nelson, who's an elder and has been and still is a significant figure in the community, what are your memories of him growing up and what is his significance, uh, particularly in relation to uh, Jerry Gill? One of the best memories of my father, and he's still alive, it's not a memory of him as a past or anything, but he's bedridden these days. He had really strong work ethics. My father didn't go very long without working. He worked on various jobs and he ended up working for Parks Victoria. He spent a bit over 20 years in Parks Victoria and set up some of the Aboriginal cultural programs in parks and yeah, which is still going to these days. He's the stuff he did with Jerry Gill. Jerry was a lecturer at La Trobe and he helped Jerry produce some of the cultural awareness programs in La Trobe, even to the point where La Trobe gave him an honorary fellowship um, in Bendigo. So you know, he was, he was pretty respected in the community. Yeah. You are listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Uncle Rick Nelson. The Zhaja Wurrung people are part of one of three tribes of the Kulin Nation, along with the Tungurung and the Wurundjeri people. They're made up of, I think, 16 patrilineal clans or more? Yeah, they're about 16 to 20 known clans. A couple, I think, were wiped out in the early parts of, of settlement. 
yeah, and there was about five, I think, tribes, if you like, um, or language groups as politically correct these days, um, in the Kulin Nation, which is your Woiwurrung, your Melbourne people, the Tungurrung, um, around Seymour, Wadawurrung, around Ballarat, Geelong, Jarjarwurrung. Um, there might be one or two others, I just forget at the moment. Because I remember you told me that the language was important, that the Jarjarwurrung, the language means yes, mouth? Yeah, Jarjar. Jar is the word for yes, and Wurrung is the word for mouth or tongue or speak. So it's possibly something like the people who said yes or who other people said yes to. A funny fact is that about uh, six or seven of the surrounding groups uh, all have no in their name. Um, Wada Wurrung, Wada is no. Woi Wurrung, Woi is no. Even up to Yorta Yorta, Yorta or Yitta, Yitta is no. So we've got all these no people surrounding these yes people. <laughs> I'm not, not sure why that is. I might have it wrong, but uh, I think you read that it, it's mouth, like yes, mouth, and the others are no teeth. Do you know what the significance of that is? I'm not sure, Mark. What it, is. it is interesting, though, a yes surrounded by, um, mm. surrounded by no. What is the history of the Jaja Rarung and, and their relationship to the, the other tribes? Pretty much. Basically on friendly terms with most of the people. We know some of our clans married into the Wurrung people. They can only marry certain groups. You've got your moieties, which is like a, a skin group. You're uh, either a crow or an eagle person, and an eagle couldn't marry another eagle person. An eagle had to marry into the crow people. And, you know, the Kulin people had um, from 40 to 70% language compatibility, so they could understand each other, you know, from 40 up to 70%. Probably neighbouring groups would learn you know, or understand bits of other groups' language. Or if you married a Wurundjeri woman or a Wurrung woman, she would come into your clan and she'd probably bring a bit of her language which would seep into your clan's language. Right. Um, I was interested in the, because I think not only the Jajarurung, but the other tribes basically had two Maoris in terms of, and I think the names may have changed, but Bunjil was the eagle and Wa was the crow. Yeah. I guess could we first talk about the significance of Bunjil in terms of the mythology and then we'll move on to Wa. Yeah, sure. Bunjil is our creator spirit. Bunjil basically created the earth and, and everything on it and in it and um, all the animals, etc. And there's a, a, a thing down in southwestern Victoria, some people might be aware of, called Bunjil's Cave or Bunjil's Shelter. It's a, a little cave and it's got a cave painting of, of Bunjil, a man type figure with two dogs, which we think are two dingoes, which said that he went into the cave and went to sleep and turned himself into an eagle so he could sort of fly around and look over his creation. And Wah Crow um, is thought to be uh, Bunjil's brother. And the thing was, Wah and Bunjil again had a bit of a, a falling out and Wah flew off to a distant land and, and learnt the secret of fire. And he was white and very handsome and good looking as he learned the, the secret of fire. He got burnt and became black. But yeah, there's a group of people up in northwestern Victoria 
called the Buong people, which could read the night sky. All stars like that on astronomy today. And there's Bunjil and Wah up in the stars. Yeah, I did want to talk to you about that, actually, which was some of the early pastoralists who, who were more sympathetic and were interested in anthropology noticed that the Aboriginal people had a very strong astronomy and they thought that Jupiter was the, the campfire of Bunjil. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also, the night sky would tell them various things. I know one instance with the Mallee fowl in the night sky, and I forget the uh, order it's in, but it's like in the winter, Saltus is in one part of the sky, and you know, the seasons, if it comes into the summer, Saltus is um, in the opposite area of the night sky, which then means that the eggs are ready to go and to go and collect. So they'd read things, even about food and that into the night sky. Some navigation, essentially, in terms of topography and moving around for food sources. Yeah, in a sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, we've done, well, I've done it on country with you, and I thought we'd talk about some of the, the places that you take us to, some of the more significant uh, local sites. I was wondering if you could tell us about this scar tree. Yeah, certainly. Do a little um, cultural awareness type training things with uh, various groups. And it's my role to take them around, particularly around my area, around Castlemaine, and show them Aboriginal sites and that, if you like. And yeah, this tree is what we call a scar tree. The Aboriginal people would take the bark off a tree. It really wasn't the bark. Um, people call them bark canoes and that. It's not really the bark. Thereafter, as we know, bark can get waterlogged and end up sinking. There's a, a thin layer of wood between the bark and the heartwood of the tree. So that grey part of the tree, there's a heartwood that protects the heartwood of the tree. And that's what the people were after, is a thin layer of wood. We think that one there is probably a canoe scar. There's uh, various uses of the bark or the wood. You know, take bark off for the roofs on their little lean-to huts. Sometimes they would bury people wrapped in bark. There's also uh, other things like coolamon dishes, little bowls. They were sort of vessels for carrying fruits or, or seeds and stuff, sometimes water. Uh, even on the bit bigger ones, they'd carry small children in them. Shields were made, taken from um, trees, but that was a bit more of the actual wood that was taken off, not so much the bark or the bit of wood that protects the heartwood is called the cambium. So um, shield is a bit more of actually solid wood, and uh, the cambium is only like half an inch thick or something. So that one there could be a little one-man canoe. Maybe that that's um, at a place called Golden Point which is just out of Tooton. So it could have been for going down on a forest creek or, or something like that. I think you also said that this was done without. I mean, part of the consideration was that it's not going to kill the tree. Yeah, yeah. Probably um, 90 plus percent that didn't kill the tree. Um, you might be able to see on that one that the actual scar or the removal of the bark didn't go all the way to the ground. It would go uh, a foot or six inches or a foot um, above the ground. And we think that was so that insects and grubs and stuff didn't really get into the trees. Yeah. 
So there's a sense of sustainability. I know that Bruce Pascoe's book, A Dark Emu, really uh, uh, addressed some myths and misconceptions around Aboriginal people as hunter-gatherers and the agriculture that was... They actually used farmed this, and... Yeah, so could you talk about some of the agriculture that was produced by the Jaja Rurang? Yeah, I'm not really adverse to the agriculture stuff. I know um, that people would do the cold burns or the slow burns of the burning off, which, uh, as we know now, that the flame and heat germinated some seeds and stuff, um, needed the heat or, or, or the fire to germinate. Of course, the, the ash and that would fertilise the ground. And um, we know that the women would dig up the yam daisies. Augustus Robinson talks about coming over Smeaton Hill and virtually as far as he could see, the fields were yellow with the yam daisy or the murnong daisy. And, and as he got down to the bottom of the hill, there was between 20 and 40 women all digging up the, the yams with their yam sticks. So that turned the soil over and as, as well. So, um, yeah, get this all aerated. And I remember you saying that one of the effects of European colonisation was that the animals that were brought in, cows, sheep, cloven-hoofed animals, compacted the soil. Uh, yeah. What was the soil like before that? Yeah, well, like I was saying, you know, some instances uh, the soil was really toiled. Uh, a guy called Reverend Langhorn, who had the first Aboriginal school and, and mission, which is where the um, Botanic Gardens is in Melbourne now, he writes how you could spear your hand into the ground and the soil would go up past your wrist. And there were little animals and that, uh, quails and that were coming into his tent and warming themselves by the lanterns. And so the soil was quite rich and you know, like farmed, like ploughed land. And yeah, so it was quite soft. And, and that's right, within four years of settlement, there was like a 100,000 sheep and probably about the same amount of, of cattle. And they actually um, loved the yams and would eat them and pull them out by the roots and their hoofed feet actually trampled the soil and land down so much that the yam virtually doesn't grow anymore. It was impossible for them to come back. Yeah, that's right. And you look at the Australian animals, have all got soft paws. And so the, the hoofed feet of early European animals um, did quite a lot of damage as well. Uh, we might... Move to the next slide, thanks. Could you talk about what this is? Yep, this is what we call a rock well. This is um, a series of about five or six that are found near Eureka Reef, again in Tewton, and people would see where the water was, was flowing down the hill, for example, find a, a bit of a dip or something in the rock, um, particularly sometimes, most of the time sandstone, and would chip away at it with their hammer stones and axes and stuff and, and create this little um, well, which would collect water. And usually it's uh, the south or eastern side of the hill, so it doesn't get the hot afternoon sun and therefore evaporate. Most of them would have a, a little stone lid to them to stop small animals and that from falling in and contaminating the water and again to help with evaporation. And that one there, that's probably halfway up my arm deep, that one. Some out of Mount Kiora, which, um, or one in particular is waist deep. And we think that some of those are ceremonial baths 
the bathing after ceremonies. These weren't naturally formed, these were cut in by hand? Yeah, cut in by hand, yeah. Could you tell us what the purpose and function of this was in their location? Yep, these are what we call grinding grooves. Like I mentioned before, people carried a mortar and pestle on a small little grinding stone. But these ones are a rocky outcrop at Vaughan Springs and they're probably used for, for grinding up small foods, seeds and berries and they would grind up yams and make them into like a flour and they would cook it, make a damper or a bread. Also, sometimes they're used to, to sharpen their axes. There's a lot of them called axe grinding grooves. There should be a, a big bowl next to those as well. Which is quite round. Yeah, yeah, that's it there. That one, this is right next to the Loddon River, which we think would be, would have been a camping place because you're protected by the gorge uh, in a bit of a valley there. So it'd be protected from the elements, the wind and, and lots of food resources right on the banks of the river. So that one there would be a food grinding grooves. It's, I call it a salad bowl. That's probably this round. And it's sort of ergonomically kind. If you sit in it, and we've had people sit in it, elderly people, and it's quite friendly for your posture. So you can see on the ones to the left, it's actually built up quite a lip on the stone from continuous you know, rubbing and we think for, for it to be that deep it, it's taken generations to, to get it like that so possibly you know, a hundred couple hundred years to get it to that stage and the yam daisy crops they would have been harvested and brought here or they were quite close Oh, they would have been close around as well, but, but harvested and brought in as well um, in their Coolamon dishes and, and dilly bags and baskets. Once again, the, the yams were a fallback food. If they had a bad day hunting, they could quite easily go and dig up some yams and, and make a damper type thing. Yep. You are listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Uncle Rick Nelson. So this is a Khan out at uh, Franklin Fort. Uh, you mentioned George Augustus Robinson before, who was the uh, chief protector of Port Phillip or what became Victoria, essentially. Yep. Uh, and he had been assigned that job by the Aboriginal Protection Society, which was formed in May 1837. Uh, and they had essentially vanquished slavery in the British Empire and they were set up to protect Aboriginal people and to try and protect potentially land rights. The protector in this area for the Jajarurung was a man named Edward Stone Parker. Yeah. Can you tell us about who he was? Yeah, sure. People back in England in the very early stages of the colony had heard about the atrocities happening to the Aboriginal people, anti-slavery people, and they rallied the government to form this protectorate system where they, in their goodwill, they would try to protect the Aboriginal people. And Victoria was divided into four parts and a protector was assigned to each area. And this central northwest area was, uh, like you say, Edward Stone Parker's area. And really they were school teachers, ex-school teachers or, or missionaries. Um, so they didn't really have a lot of knowledge about going out to the colonies. But Parker set up the, the protectorate station at Franklin Ford. 
which was the judge I recognized was Lana Barrymore, which um, means place of the emu or home of the emu or something like that. And it successfully ran for about nine years. There was uh, some uh, early German missionaries who were, who were out here and they drew sketches of the sort of little village thing. And there, there were 17 buildings. Um, there was like a butcher. There was a, there was a blacksmith shop. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a wheel rider. He was probably the wheel rider who fixed the wagons on your wheel. There's a police officer stationed there. There's a, a few other little, you know, shop-type buildings. And there'd be up to 200 people would be camped there at times. Early on in the settlement, they would often go away and, and come back a month or a couple of months later, obviously doing their traditional living. And there's an Aboriginal school there, which the sign is still there today. A lot of the local European kids went to this school as well. It was quite a thriving little community there up until about 1849. After that, uh, the government stopped funding the protectorate and Parker took it on himself as an honorary correspondent. Uh, ran it for another 10 or 15 odd years again um, until when they started closing down the stations and most of the people out at Franklin Ford were, were moved either to Corrandirk or Framlingham, uh, which is down Warrnambool Way. And we had what was known as the last four farmers were left there trying to farm and you know, make a living on, on their own. And we know that one man fell down a mine shaft and was killed. Another fellow was, got sick and died, and I think the others were, were taken to move to Corrandirk. Yeah, and that was um, when it was first allotted. It was 66 square miles until um, you know more and more settlers came, and then the gold came, and it ended up being taken down to the five, what we call a five-mile radius which would be a, a few hundred acres. And Parker's family and, and stuff are buried in the Franklin Ford Cemetery. He had a special relationship with the Jojorong. Uh, What's your sense of it? Well, one of his sons could fluently speak Jojorong language. My sense is that, you know, he, he, tried, he tried to help the people. It was very early in the days. Um, they didn't trust him fully, in a sense, Sometimes I'd go up to him and say, you know, why we come and sit here and, you know, learn to read books and and stuff which weren't really um, much help to the Aboriginal people at the time. Um, so that's that's why they wouldn't stay long. They, they would just come for a few weeks or, or a month or two and, and then take off and go and do their traditional living. But, you know, it had its ups and downs. It's called a successful failure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think Governor well, Franklin or somebody went out there and the buildings were getting dilapidated from lack of maintenance. So it was eventually the funding was pulled and it closed down. But I take my hat off to him for, for trying and it was relatively successful. I guess the point I spoke to Bain Atwood, who we both know, who wrote The Good Country, which is essentially a modern history. He's a historian with Monash University. And he said that the only lineal descendants of the Jajarurung can be traced back to that protectorate system. And so although, you know, we're stuck with someone like Edward Stone Parker, who was a complex historical figure, as they all were, 
He was someone who was an evangelical missionary, a philanthropist, but who believed in native title and uh, the native right to the soil. Um, he also tried to prosecute settlers and ticket of leave men who killed Aboriginals. They were unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, but he was also there trying to convert the Aboriginal people to Christianity uh, and believed that that was a way of elevating them, essentially. Uh, and so you yeah. have those conflicting... And that was part of the reason that a lot of the elders there left and, and that were the younger people. Yeah, 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 that's right. I think I think it was more at Corrindirk. A lot of the people adapted to Christianity quite easily and quite well yes. um, to the point that uh, at Corrindirk they'd have a church service twice on, on Sundays so all the people could get there sometimes. The church was at full people standing outside. So a lot of the Aboriginal people did adapt to Christianity. There was quite a few who, who wouldn't adapt and would try and stay to traditional ways. But, you know, they say Victoria sustainably held around 10 to 15,000 people or Aboriginal people. Um, within four years, there was uh, 60,000 white men, um, you know, the, the hundred had a hundred thousand head of sheep and cattle and uh, Victoria was overrun really quickly uh, and then the gold came mm. so again another big influx of European people coming in I think he and they did the best that they could because the licenses that the Pistorius had they encroached upon the protectorate system over time until it essentially collapsed because of the power that was wielded by the pastoralists, they had newspapers, and they uh, they were very obviously very critical of the protectorate system. Yeah. But there were people who stayed on. Yeah. What do you know of people like William Denolly? Tommy Denolly. Sorry, Thomas um, Denolly. Tommy was um, another one of the um, elders who was taken to Corrindirk or had moved down to Corrindirk. He was actually um, on such good terms or in such favour with William Barrack that he became one of his right-hand men, he called him. Um, and, and he was the one who actually scribed some of the petitions and that for William Barrack. We know that um, over at Darsford there was uh, three, I think there three lost children and they brought Tommy Denolly up from Corrindirk or uh, Hillsville to help search for those kids with his tracking abilities to the point where they gave him an inscribed rifle with an inscription on the, on the metal part of the gun. So for them to give an Aboriginal man in those days a rifle, he was pretty well respected. So yeah, yeah he was quite a respected man in the, in the Aboriginal communities. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, that could be here. And thank you for everyone for coming. <laughs> How do you feel about taking questions from the floor? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, if anyone sure. has any questions, please sure. feel free. I was up in Uluru two years ago and uh, enjoyed it very much. Real eye-opener and did the 11-kilometre walk around the, the rock. Yep. Um, I spoke with a couple of Aboriginal people up there, and I was quite amazed to hear that although there have been, or well, there are still perhaps, hundreds of Aboriginal languages in this vast continent, I was told that the, the local language there, 
in Java. Can be understood as far away as Kalgoorlie, which is a thousand kilometers from Uluru, which really amazed me. And I was just wondering how much understanding would there be of other languages at, say, 50 or 100 kilometers from here? that your tribe would have? Uh, yeah, well, like you say, there was hundreds. There was um, around about 400 to 600 different dialects, if you like, um, which would be clan variants of languages across Australia, around 30 or 40 across Victoria. Like with the Kulin people, with the neighbours, they had language compatibility of from 40 to 70%. So they would understand their neighbours to a varying degree, probably depended on the relationships they had with them, if it was good relationships. They'd understand each other a bit more, particularly if they could marry into those people. If they weren't on such good terms, they probably didn't understand each other or bother to learn unfriendly neighbouring neighbours. I know it might be only the one instance that the word with the Pinjara people for dance is Yaparenye, and the word for dance in the Jajarung language is Yapanay. Um, so it's really similar, you know, so I'm not sure, but I personally think that earlier on, probably seven, several hundred or perhaps thousand years ago, um, the people knew what other people were doing to a varying degree. You've got the Mungo man, a Mungo woman who was ceremonial, buried with red ochre stained bones. We've got a Kilo burial with red ochre stained bones as well. So well, it's a very similar ceremonial burials. Whether that be coincidence or on purpose, I'm not sure. You are listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Uncle Rick Nelson. I have another question as well. If we could just move to the next slide. Ah, uh, Rick, could you explain what this tree is and where it is? Yeah, that's the Guildford Big Tree. That's reportedly around 700 years old. And there is information on a little interpretation board there. It says basically when the Europeans first came along, there was Aboriginal people camped around the tree or about the tree. I actually have a, a grinding stone that was found 50 metres from the tree. And we also think that the tree has uh, what we call a ring tree or grafted branches in the tree that usually perform a bit of a ring in the tree. And we know that that represents that there's a important place nearby whether it be ceremonial place, burial place, or or whatever, we're not not sure. I know of another tree out at out at Franklin Ford, which is around a thousand years old, which is has quite clearly distinct ring in the middle of the tree where the branches have been grafted together. These are very significant. I know of a place up near Swan Hill, which is called Stony Crossing. The European people couldn't work out how the Aboriginal people were getting across the river until they, they found out that there's actually 
like a little bridge of stones under the water, just, just under the water. There's a ring tree just near it, and if you look through the ring, it points you in the direction of the of the stony crossing. So they could be uh, marker trees, or they could be directional trees. I, I'm not entirely sure, but we know it means there's something important in the neighbourhood. I think it was mentioned earlier, this is in Guildford. Guildford, yeah. Thanks, Uncle Rick. I live in Malmesbury. Mount Alexander Shire is doing quite a lot to recognise and help the Jarjawurrung community. So what can we, who are ratepayers in this shire, do? What do you need us to do to help the name and the reputation and the memory of past Jarjawurrung people and to help the present Jarjawurrung people? We're fortunate in Castlemaine where we've got a really supportive community. Even one of our mayors lived on an old um, pastoral station where it's recorded that uh, some of the workers uh, stood on, on the shear and shed roof and watched an Aboriginal burial take place over in the uh, paddock over the yonder. He was really supportive of the local Indigenous community and the Jajawurrung people. What we've found is, yeah, so we've got a strong reconciliation group and movement in Castlemaine. We've got to where we meet with the local shire three or four times a year. We have roundtable meetings with the with the shire and work out how we can support each other on, on various projects. So I, I would think that would be one of the first steps I'd probably try and take is to gather up a, a group of reconciliation-type supportive people and start from there. I'm not really up-to-date on the Macedon Shire. I, I have actually done a couple of welcomes for them at a couple of various um, meetings and that they've had, um, so they are a little bit supportive there. So that's probably the first step, I think. Mount Macedon was like a, a corner um, stone or place, if you like, the three or four groups, borders, you know, come up to Mount Macedon. I know the Galgal Gundich people or, or the clan were um, from Clinton up to um, Mount Alexander. Um, I'm not, off the top of my head, I'm not aware of the people who sort of went out um, east or, or that of there. So we consider Kyneton to be still in Jajawurrung country. I think in the Sunbury to um, Mount Macedon district somewhere, uh, perhaps towards Romsey, there is apparently a very important um, Aboriginal centre for the production of stone implements. And that might be a good spot to start if it's within Macedon ranges, I'm not sure. But that the preservation of that site would seem to be of extreme importance. We know there's uh, about five or six borer rings or corroboree rings uh, around Sunbury, so that could have been a meeting place for, for people to meet. And uh, you know, obviously discussing, but but dance and ceremonies more to the point. The corroboree rings are, are quite significant or quite noticeable in the ground in the paddocks so yeah yeah that possibly could be a very important ceremonial meeting place for the surrounding tribes to meet and trade and yeah final questions i think for rick um 
I'd just like to ask a question about um, language. Is there any ambition from the Jaja Rung to uh, rename some of the main uh, rivers and is there any move to rename some of these places so that language can once again uh, be spoken in the Jaja Rung language, whether you have any um, ambition for that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know um, in the Mount Alexander Shire, in the Castlemaine area, we have named a couple of streets and the old Cold Highway is actually named after my great-great-grandfather, Harmony Way. Um, his name was Harmony Nelson. But we have renamed a couple of streets and actually some local groups are pushing to rename or have dual names for Mount Alexander. The Dajawarung name for that was the Anganook. So there is a bit of a movement to try and do some of those. We do have a little group uh, researching the language and hopefully producing a dictionary in the not-too-distant future. Although uh, there wasn't a real lot of the language recorded, there's only about 900 or 1,000 words as far as we know, but we are trying to produce a dictionary to see what words and names mean. Yeah, we have a small group of kids at primary school age Aboriginal kids that every second Friday we take them to a, an old school on the outskirts of town and do cultural activities with them. So they're getting little bits of language put into their make and use it daily and that if they want things like learn to count the Jaja Wurrung way and, and some of the seasons and things like that, which is probably a good way to get the language back into daily public use, I suppose. So uh, there's a little push for it. Yeah, it's not great yet, but there's a bit of a movement, absolutely. Uh, I'd just like to say thanks very much for coming out in this chilly winter evening. So, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you've been Thank you, Elder Uncle Rick Nelson. If I could just mention before people move on to the catering, which was kindly provided by the Murnong Mamas, that the Masson Rangers Council is currently working on its, I think, its first uh, reconciliation action plan. And I'd like to thank you, um, along with Rick, for coming out and supporting our NAIDOC Week event. That was great, Mark. Really interesting. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, yeah. We've got a few interviews coming up about Indigenous culture, haven't we, in the future? Who, who have we got coming up that you're going to be speaking to? I'm speaking to Professor Bain Atwood, who's a professor of history at Monash University and who has written a book called The Good Country, which is about the Jajawarung and the effects of colonisation in this area. Right, specifically this area, right. And, of course, off-air, we're going to have available an early interview we did with uh, author and historian Nick Brody, who um, wrote about the Vandemonian War. 
Yeah, well, the Vandemonium War is a revisionist history. Um, some of the original histories, like Clive Turnbull's The Black War, uh, really paint a very, very different picture of what occurred in Tasmania uh, with colonisation there under Governor Arthur. And I think Nick's book, so Nick accessed archives, which are readily available within the National Library, and he found that contrary to what previous historians had found, that the actual what's termed the Vandemonium War or the Black War was very, very much a considered and strategic military operation. And it gives you an insight into some really, I suppose, controversial historical figures such as John Batman and how he behaved during the Vandemonium War. It also provides a revision of Governor Arthur, who had up to that point been considered by historians to be somewhat of a humanitarian in mm. terms of his approach towards Aboriginal people. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I believe they've renamed Batman's Hill in Melbourne. I heard that, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, John Batman was involved in, in terms of those military campaigns uh, like the black line where they were trying to herd up aboriginals and uh, move them onto the islands around tasmania and he was involved in the execution of aboriginal prisoners but uh, nick's point is that when these figures went to victoria they were aware of the political gravity of what they'd done and they tried to remodel themselves for history an early cover-up almost isn't it yeah Uh, yeah, that's revisionist history you know in the moment well i think his point was that they actually didn't they didn't really try to cover it up so a lot of the archives and the historical uh, records were readily available and no one had really bothered to look them up until nick revisited them Mm. Yeah, look, I find it really interesting because, of course, the common perception is that um, there was no campaign at all. It was a disorganised sort of It's sort of seen as a chaotic frontier war between settlers and Aboriginal people, Aboriginal tribes. And it really does change the entire situation if it's an organised militaristic campaign. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's much totally more different. It's much more considered, but uh, obviously they had to hide that to some extent. Of course. And I've recently um, seen an article on the ABC where archaeologists had discovered hundreds of paramilitary native-mounted police camps located all across Queensland. So very similar. It's a whole new view of Australia's frontier history. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, here there were, around this area, around the goldfields, Franklin Ford, some of the early settlers, uh, this is sort of uh, elucidated by Bain Atwood that they had campaigns of massacre and genocide. The protectors themselves tried to unsuccessfully prosecute a lot of these people. In Tasmania, Governor Arthur uh, released a decree that said that any settler who murdered an Aboriginal person would face capital punishment and, and the same would occur for an Aboriginal who killed a settler. Mm. Well, no settler was ever convicted yep, yeah. or faced capital punishment for the murder of an Aboriginal. Mm. So it's a fairly disturbing history, I suppose. Well, I like the William Faulkner quote that the past isn't dead, it isn't even the past. Mm. So until we properly inspect the past... Uh, we never really learn from it. The other quote being that the only thing men learn from history is that men don't learn from history. And that's not to suggest that we're facing those situations today, but it is important in terms of our cultural identity to 
understand what's occurred in the past. It really is important to acknowledge it and have some truth instead of the comfortable history that we've uh, built for ourselves. So let's talk about next week. We have Dr. Olfat Mahmood. Oh, yeah, Dr. Olfat Mahmood has written a book called Tears for Tashiha. So in 1949, uh, David Ben-Gurion, one of the founders of the State of Israel and its first Prime Minister, is reported to have said that we must do everything to ensure that the Palestinians never return and that the old will die and the young will forget. And so my conversation with Dr. Olfat Mahmoud, who is a Palestinian refugee, along with her parents and her grandparents, is about her experiences in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, and also talking about some of the political decisions made in Israel and the complicity of Israel in terms of massacres that occurred in Sabra and Shatila with Lebanese Christian militia, and also, to some extent, the silence of the international community. Well, that is an important discussion. I look forward to hearing that. That's a big one. So uh, listen out next week for Deep Trouble. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine.